Welcome to Mind Reading Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice as well as humanities research. Do doctors and patients speak the same language and how can we use narrative to bridge the evident gaps? These are the questions that animate the work. Mind Reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life project at Oxford University and the University of Birmingham, and expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland and the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health particularly. This podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we postponed due to COVID-19, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. This final segment in Vaccinating Ireland, Facts, Fears and Fictions from the Mind Reading Experts in Conversation series brings together all of the previous panellists, Professor Geraldine Meany, Harriet Wheelock, Dr David Grimes and Professor Donald Brennan, to discuss the themes arising from their individual presentations, which you can listen to on separate tracks. The Q&A is chaired by myself, Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady of the UCD School of English Drama and Film, and I'm joined also by uh, Dr. Elizabeth Barrett of UCD School of Medicine and founder of the Mind Reading Project. I have to say my very favourite thing about mind reading is how every single person on every panel thinks that everybody else's contribution is the most interesting one. I just I love seeing that um, that exchange and the kind of the, the, the way in which people just wholeheartedly jump into the, the kind of interdisciplinary conversations. And I think you're absolutely right. So um, I think there is so much to discuss around the care of, around language and communication. And I mean, um, one of the things I'm, I'm really struck by is this idea that the, the language of resistance hasn't changed, but of course, none of the narratives have changed. They're exactly the same, the, the kind of the freedom, the pollution, the purity, whereas the science is, is rapidly advancing and is so much more nuanced and complex. And so the communication around the science does have to evolve, whereas the communication around the resistance maybe maybe doesn't need to evolve in the same way. And I'm, I'm struck, we were talking about ancient myths. I'm struck by Pandora's box, that it was um, Apate, the, the goddess of deceit, who was the first to escape from Pandora's box. Like there really is nothing new under the sun in, in a sense. So I'm gonna open the discussion back up and joining us now also is, uh, is Elizabeth Barrett, um, who's an associate professor at UCD in child and adolescent psychiatry. So she's gonna, she's gonna step in as well. Um, I suppose the first question that I have, I was struck by everybody's comment, everybody individually commented on the importance of the local, right, and the, the, the importance of the immediate community. Um, and I wonder, would it be fair to say that that's where the power lies in this, in, in, in rollout and delivery and communication that really for all COVID is a global problem, these vaccination policies, these vaccination deliveries, all of the science is responding to global problems. And that's been the case all along, but that in the end, where it counts and where it emerges is is in the kind of local community. And I just wondered if perhaps um, we could talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to invite you to kick your mics on. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Claire. Um, and, you know, that's going to be a big issue as we roll out vaccination. Um, uh, uh, and I suppose, uh, particularly on an Irish perspective, the, uh, the biggest uh, community organisation we have is the GAA. And um, it is likely that they will 
have a big impact on how we actually deliver vaccination if we go down the route of vaccinating in um, different uh, centres and things like that. But also, I think, um, you know, it's almost down to the micro of where people, the impact that the local nurse and the local doctor will have uh, around uh, communities. Um, and that maybe has been diluted as the local GP has been busier and it maybe isn't the same, doesn't have the same open door policy that they had 20 years ago when they were um, on call 24 seven and maybe delivered babies and uh, did everything else. So uh, that is something that I think has, that community has diminished a little bit. Uh, and that's something that we maybe will find difficult to overcome because particularly in rural Ireland, a lot of these communities have become you know, quite small and uh, people live apart. And of course, have become for have become more distant over the last year as well which is a big yeah. issue yeah absolutely of course social distancing plays into the the those community ties um in ways that maybe we we can't yet predict i think that's a, a really interesting point i didn't realize that jenner was a community physician um and that's i just i think that that's such an interesting adds such an interesting layer knowing the people that he was working with and them knowing him i think is, is such a such a vital such a vital component so interesting and we, we, we kind of have have heard about this idea that things continue to stay the same and, that, and everybody has mentioned that there are lessons to be to be learned. Um, are there lessons to be learned as well as as well as about communication, which I think we can we can all agree on? Are there lessons to be learned about delivery? I was struck by what both Harriet and Dave said about the the availability of the, the co-location, so to speak, of birth registries. Harriet, you were talking about um, and Dave, you were talking about the kind of the availability that you that it, it, it needs to be immediate and accessible. And Donald, when you were talking about Jenner's campaign to have free at the point of delivery and and universally accessible I mean, these are conversations that we're still having so are there perhaps lessons that we can learn from from earlier pandemics and earlier vaccination um strategies in terms of delivery do you think i uh, yeah i like i was really struck both like the idea of bringing the two pieces of legislation i mean obviously for covid it's different but bringing in the, the two registrations together and getting the same person to do it and going okay so we need the doctor's expertise to do the inoculation but they they can also register the birth and also the high level of uptake that you know 700 of 760 doctors agree to do it so yeah. you know they obviously they were being paid for it so there was an additional <laughs> thing for them but you know it, it's a it's a really sensible way of rolling it out and then again like the idea that in like the 18 whatever not you know 1820s you could have your vaccine sent by post i, love I just thought this was such a great idea <laughs> we have the registers in the archive and they list you know all the places that essentially the doctor could write in and say can you send me 20 packets of vaccine in the post and they would send it back to them and the post service was really quick it was you know it was there and back in a couple of days and i that's such a sensible way to deal with when transport in the country you know Absolutely. wasn't great just you know really clever use of of resources yeah so the infrastructure that that yeah that was available you have that's yeah. just i was fascinating i was really struck by that dave did you want to come in there i just think can you imagine people trying to post uh, freezers that go to minus 80 degrees <laughs> well yeah at yes. the moment but <laughs> but what is fascinating is it also shows how much vaccine technology ha has moved on as well the early vaccines were basically the live attenuated virus uh, and now we're looking at um m rna kind of it, it's incredible the, the leaps that have been made I guess it goes back to the fact that we're still competing with the same myths that were coming out in the 1800s. I wonder when you talked about locality, though, is is the method of delivery sufficiently different now? 
is the fact that we get 69% of people um, who are under the age of 40 get their news from social media. Mm. Is that a bigger factor in how we understand things? And in how it's been weaponized, we've seen it in disinformation, whether it's political propaganda or anti-vaccine stuff. And I wonder, like the the, the, the people of the historical insight maybe think that they probably you you, you folks probably have better insight into how people navigate that maze, or if there's anything historically equivalent to it. But it certainly feels new to me now. But maybe it isn't that new. I think that one of the things which evolves is, is media. Um, and every time that media evolves, it causes problems. Um, if you think of radio, fascism, you know, um, television, the Cold War, there, there, there are levels of paranoia, which as new media come on in play, that seems to be the paranoid register seems to come into its own. And then things settle down after a while. Um, but of course, with contemporary social media, that is dialed up to a degree that haven't had in the past um, and the rapidity with which misinformation can be disseminated is obviously something which is completely different now having said that one of the main kind of conduits for misinformation in the 19th century were local preachers so that's something very immediate you know the community thing can work both ways yeah uh, and I was really thinking about this when David was talking about uh, power and egos and narcissism that these people are really they're really getting off on the fact that they can control their flock to that extent. Right? Mm-hmm. Not just preachers, politicians do it as well. It's, you know, anybody who wants power, misinformation is actually quite a good way to accumulate power to yourself mm. uh, and put yourself in this position of the one who knows uh, and who's saving your flock, your constitu- constituents, whatever it is, from um, the deep state, you know, the the main authorities um it, it's this i was fascinated with this thing of the the, the nationalist kind yeah. of inflection to anti-vaccination sentiment uh which connected with something that donald said about any connection to um sexual transmission of disease mm-hmm. uh, and the way that women tend to get scapegoated for that i mean if you read 19th century sources uh only women are referenced as the ones who pass on syphilis or predominantly women. Uh, and, and they're not explicit about it, but it's there. Uh, one of the switch points in Irish nationalism is that they blame the British uh, troops in Ireland. Right? So women are the, are the default scapegoat. But if you want mm-hmm. to make a nationalist point, you blame diseases on the, the foreign body that you have the most yeah. issue. Uh, arguably, one of the reasons why the Irish state panicked so much around sexuality in the 20s and 30s was the thought if they got rid of the British army, they would get rid of prostitution, they would get rid of illegitimacy, you know, because it must have been those guys, right? So it's always the outsider. It's always the outsider. Um, and that clicks back in with the scapegoating, the blood libel and uh, anti-Semitism, which is the ultimate scapegoating. Like that's the millennial deep one. Uh, yeah. And really interesting the way those narratives keep coming back up. Um, and and it, you can't really, I, I think it's not just the leaders. It's quite difficult to reason people out of some of these ideas because to reason them out of that they have to actually recognise what they are. Yeah. You know, so they have to recognise their own fear. They have to recognise their own irrationality. Mm. Uh, and again, this ego uh, element in that, that, that yeah. people sense of themselves is very heavily invested in yeah. their idea that no I wasn't persuaded by anybody no not at all it wasn't 
that woman who came up to me at the hockey match or the thing that I saw on Facebook. I mean, if people admit it was something they saw on Facebook, you can say, no, that's why that's wrong. Yeah. Uh, but oftentimes people won't. Um, and and I, I do think that there is a danger that we just go after Instagram misinformation mm. by going on to Instagram, because I think that's a problem. I think that is a problem. Um, and, and I, I think one of the elements, but one of the elements that we might learn from the past is that the regulation of various media uh, and and the linking of various media to ideas of you you can't tell lies, you can't insult, uh, you know, whole other ethnic groups, whatever, but also that a linkage with ideas of rights. People have a right to correct information. They have a right to privacy and so on. That works much better. Mm. Um, you know, I think then, then, because you can see there is an effectiveness. I mean, the Dickens thing where you create even more violent, um, repugnant language associated with the anti-vaxxers than the anti-vaxxers associate with the vaccination program. To some extent that works. (laughs) I think it's a really good point. And I would say, you see, I never realized how aggressive Dickens was about that. And then I realized, well, actually, what he wrote about his ex-wife. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't surprise me. <laughs> but, um, but one, one of the things that that, that you, you mentioned there, I think it's absolutely true, is reframing as rights, like reframing it as a positive. Because I, mm. I find that even when people go, oh, David's going to come on and debunk something, I always feel that's already a negative slanting. Because I'm not hitting here to rain in your parade and call you an idiot. I don't think that's going to achieve anything. What I mean, and I guess where I wrote the book, the first thing is, I think the most powerful thing we can do to empower people full stop is to encourage critical thinking. Mm. And one of the big things, um, I I was writing for Embo Reports about this recently, one of the big things that we could learn from this pandemic and maybe take from this vaccination thing is the concept of information hygiene. We've all got used to physical hygiene. We wash our hands and we distance ourselves from people a little bit to make sure we don't spread an infection or catch it. I think we have to learn to treat information in a similar way, as in this is pat like they call propaganda is, is correctly called viral disinformation, and the viral part of that is very resonant. I think we have to realize that we're, our minds are easily infected. There's no shame in us being wrong, which is very hard for us to get our heads around, because we have this thing it called I, I think Daniel Cannon calls it identity protective cognition. We think that we are our ideas. And that's why if someone insults your idea, you get all offended and go, how dare you? Actually, it's just your idea. Who cares? But we do care because we're humans. Um, But I think we have to get more, ironically, promiscuous with our ideas and willing to trade them out when they're out of date. Um, But one of the ways we encourage people to do that is say, look, this is really empowering. If you get a bit of information and you treat it cautiously and keep with a stick and only accept it or share it Mm. when you know it's legitimate, you're actually empowered you're not, um, it doesn't weaken you. It makes you stronger and it makes your life a bit better. And I, I know that it, it sounds like it should be an easy sell, but at the moment it's not. But I loved your idea of framing things as as, as a net positive. And I really wish we could do that. I'm struck as well by the by what you said, Geraldine, about about the idea of framing this on in a, in a rights-based framework, which given, again, something that was mentioned several times was the kind of the language of personal responsibility that persists around this kind of, um, you, you know, when you when you were talking about um, the, the targeting of, of young parents, particularly new parents, um, that, you know, there is it, it's your fault if your child gets sick or your child dies. So there, that language of responsibility, and I've noticed it as well with COVID, it's do you want to infect your granny, you know, and, and there is this, this kind of that language of, of individual 
individual rather than systemic responsibility, which is perhaps problematic in its own way. But if we have the language of responsibility, then perhaps the language of rights um, is is a way of, of balancing that. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to pick up on as well was the the that affectiveness um, that we're talking about that, that, that kind of keeps coming up and the 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 sort of the 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 horror, the language of horror and the, the purity and, and these kinds of very visceral um, terms that come up um, and the, the the moral language that you were you were talking about, Geraldine, that, that Dickens, and I'm going to call it moral language rather than just out and out hostility, um, that, that that Dickens and, and his and his his cohort employed. But I wonder what it seems to me is the most kind of the closest thing um, more in more contemporary um, discourses is someone like Laura, um, Dave and, and Donald, who you mentioned, because so much of, of her story had that affective weight, you know, had that kind of real emotive and visceral resonance. Um, so is it something, you know, should we should we be should we be seeking more um, more local, more patient advocates? Is that, you know, don't like struck by your your estimation that it's a failure of medical communication. But I feel like doctors are pretty busy. You know, you guys have a lot to do. So mm -hmm. what's what's maybe what's maybe worth talking about is where not only where is the responsibility for this communication, but where is the power to, to communicate in that? We know that affective language works in both directions. So if we could if we could empower one cohort of people in this form of communication, who would it be? What would who who's who's the who's the weapon here? Do you think? Um. So I think that uh, one of the things that I kind of figured about this is that uh, we have to be very careful about this idea that people do not understand um, yeah. and people do understand and I actually feel that we as scientists and academics can be quite we're very good at talking down to people mm -hmm. uh, and I've started to kind of develop this idea that it's not really ignorance it's a lack of acceptance people yeah. understand um, very difficult concepts, but they may not accept them. And I think there are two, and if, as, as we continue to uh, use this idea that uh, they, the lack of understanding of any sort of medical technology, we just drive this wedge that yeah. annoys people. Um, and I think that's where the patient story comes very important because mo I have yet to meet a patient who will preach to a room um, they will tell their story using yeah. language that's appropriate. Um, they will have their emotional um, intelligence is often far greater because of their own um, lived experience than anything that we can kind of kind of try to replicate. Uh, so I absolutely couldn't think of it a more important group than patients who are recovering um, from any condition that you could vaccinate against as being the best advocates for um, the uh, for uh, any rollout of any vaccine or any other health innovation. Um, because ultimately, they are the people that um, your constituency will uh, resonate with. Now, but the other big issue I think that comes in here, uh, and maybe it's for another discussion, is around leadership. Sure. Um, because I think... Mm. Uh, and maybe Geraldine can touch on this in a few minutes, that 
political leadership is hugely important here, and it, it's it's so obvious as we see the differences around the world uh, in countries that have yeah. coped well and have not coped well, and how that has had an impact. And you know, not to be too politically incorrect, but I find it really galling that even in our own country, some of the politicians who are very much um, against the anti or against the HPV vaccination and other ones crying out. Mm. about the rollout of the COVID vaccine program, which in fact is a huge undertaking, the biggest undertaking our health service has ever uh, tried to do. And, and, and we're not doing a bad job at it considering yeah. the way we start, had to start out. So I think um, I actually feel that a lot of the public anger sometimes that comes with problems that happen with healthcare are exacerbated. And oftentimes... Um, the, the the a stoked this fury is stoked in Ireland in particular by a, by an irrational political reaction, uh, yeah. and this comes down to uh, local politics in a small country. And as long as we remain in this parochial system where the local politician has to jump up and down and shout for his or her local services, mm -hmm. whatever they may be, uh, we are going to be in trouble because that generates that narrative. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's a historical thing. And maybe in countries where there's a more federal system where the local politics is managed locally and federal system kind of can deal with the bigger issues that you don't see that. But in Ireland in particular, I think that's a huge issue. Yeah, I think that speaks very much to to both something that Harriet raised and something that, that Geraldine raised, that these are not, and, and that you, you've said yourself, it's not necessarily an issue of understanding. It's not necessarily even an issue of education. There are so many different systems at play here. So you've got political ideologies inflecting responses to illness and inflecting responses to, to health services. Um, you've got that that's the sort of ideas of freedom that are are perhaps unrelated to belief in science or otherwise. Um, and, and as Geraldine pointed out, that the solution is not um, is not just changing the information, it's tackling it's tackling all of these huge interrelated issues, um, which I think is 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 really important. And so, Donald, your your point about the sort of twin necessity of local communication and political leadership, I think, is a, is a really really significant one. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a, a really important one. Um, the other element that I was really struck by is the the role again of 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 kind of of families and of parents and mothers in particular, which you, you all commented on. And I think that there's an awful lot at play there. There is um, the sort of the gendering of care is something that I'm I'm really interested in um, and that I think I would love to hear a little bit more about. But I'm also struck in just in in, in since we're talking about the, the rollout of the COVID vaccine, how different is that when we're talking about vaccination that's going to be administered to majority adults? If we're not, I mean, we we are we are also talking about families, you know, families bringing their children for vaccination. Ultimately, I hope, um, speaking as a parent to small children, um, but but if we're talking about vaccinations that are administered in the in the majority of cases to individual adults, does that conversation change? And is there any, um, is there any history of that? I mean, are, are there were there were there? I'm I'm not familiar with kind of vaccine rollouts to adults in history. And I wonder if anyone has any commentary on that. I would think that this is going to be one of the ones where the issue of trust in institutions, to go yeah. back to Donald's point, is a really crucial one. And I, I think we have to be realistic in Ireland that a very large proportion of the population 
distrust our institutions yeah. and and for good reason i mean you know really? the, you, this is all going on on the mother and baby homes yeah. report comes out and is completely mishandled and um also you have you know, for many people when you say cervical cancer the the, the hesitation that people yeah. have for the screening program is because they don't trust it because they feel it was messed up before so I think it's not just local politicians or opposition politicians trying to score points. Mm. The, the 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 idea of a government acting in the best interests of the general public and being trustworthy. Um, I think it's going to be a huge public health issue to displace the public relationship with the government from the public relationship with the vaccination program yeah. and i think that's why a lot of people uh, kind of you know anecdotally you hear people say no i'm not listening to those politicians yeah and they're waiting for the doctors yeah. to talk yeah which is a lot as you said the doctors have a lot to do yeah. <laughs> so there's that I feel like there is that <laughs> but i i do think that, that you know the medical profession the individual doctors actually people have a lot of yeah a lot of faith trust in in ireland i think that is a, is historically that that's been the case but i think that's still there for yeah. a lot of people and um, it helps if you've got a long-term relationship with one gp which in urban areas uh, busy practices a lot of times people don't so that's going to be a factor but i, I think it'd be really important to disconnect this from people's relationship and, and it is you're in the, in the realm of affect how people feel Absolutely. about yeah. the government you know? Yeah, I kept in, in my notes, I kept writing down affective, affective, affective. <laughs> so very much so. So capturing the, that affective response and that idea of of trust, I think, is is vital. I mean, Donald mentioned the GAA, which I think is a really interesting, um, you know, that's that is a, a kind of a, 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 a local system that is also that is also uh, operates at a national level and in which there is generally a high degree of, of trust. And it seems to me from from all of the, 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 the conversations that those are the kinds of um powerful networks community pharmacists are another that that struck me that we haven't mentioned yet um who you know who operate very much locally and who you know in in whom in general there's a kind of a high degree of relationship a high degree of reciprocity of relationship um at least so it's just it's 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 so interesting because you sort of think vaccine hesitancy is something that we can fix with education but really there's so much more going on um so much more going on there and it's it's just such a it's such an interesting kind of tangle of issues and it really does lay bare i suppose the functioning of of, of different societies as you said donald there are countries that have managed this well and countries that have so far not managed it very well and i think there will be a long time will be a long time unpacking those early responses and what generated them well, claire can i just come in there and just something jardine said which is interesting and i I think it is something we need to this lack of trust in Ireland in um, and where does that come from? And it, like the mother and baby home is a great example of that. But our much maligned HSE has performed significantly better than the often, um, you know, than the great national pride that is the NHS um, in the UK in the last year um, with regards to how we've managed COVID um, mm. in particular. Um, and, you know, today, here in the matter, we are doing major complex cancer surgery with the ICU full, which isn't happening in the UK. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's uh, there is an issue there that's worth exploring. And we, 
one of the big re reasons that you don't find um, medics standing up is not because they're too busy or too, um, uh, or that they're afraid to do so. It's that we live in a very uh, litigious culture. And um, the medical legal culture in Ireland in particular is um, you know, profoundly more aggressive than um, anywhere else in the world apart from the US, to be honest. And one of the reasons you find a very you find a lot of doctors are unwilling to stand up is because they do feel that they will open themselves up, not maybe based on what they do, but if they have any sort of a profile, if something yeah. goes wrong, mm. then they will be um, open to to, to uh, litigation. And that is really, you know, one of the things that in Ireland, and that comes back to my idea of acceptance versus ignorance. We have to figure out as a society how we accept um, risk and benefit, uh, and vaccination is a good example of that. Uh, and ultimately, if we look at all of these things, that, um, uh, th these failures that have happened, uh, most of them come down to, again, my point about cover-ups or lack of communication. So if we can start to develop this open, integrated um, conversation with people, I think at an early stage, we can overcome those. Uh, but if we don't do that, we're going to run into serious trouble because ultimately we have to be very clear with, with everybody in Ireland that we're all part of a huge experiment right now. This is the world's biggest ever clinical trial. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And if somebody says to me tomorrow, well, is the COVID vaccine safe? I can tell you, well, it's safe for two months, or two to three months. That's the data we have. And anybody that says anything else uh, that promotes the vaccine, in my opinion, is just is doing just as big a disservice as somebody who is um, anti-vax. Yeah. Uh, and, and oftentimes... Uh, we have to be very careful with that. And one of the things that's come out in COVID is, as we've seen from the president of the US downwards, that people have jumped on the train and promoted really um, dangerous treatments without any evidence. Yeah. Um, and there's been plenty of medics who've done that too. Yeah. I think, you know, we have an opportunity here, I would say, to maybe rebuild that trust yeah. and to use this national experiment, which it is. But we have to be honest with people, and I'm not sure we have been to date. I think, I think that's a, yeah go ahead oh, sorry uh, you, uh, you go ahead I'll, I'll jump in after <laughs> I was actually going to come back to something that you'd said just just picking up on, on what Donal has said that, that that I think framing it as an opportunity is a really important thing because as you say you know the the, the HSE much and all as it's as it's maligned um has has performed under extraordinary stress as it as it ever does um and actually and this goes back to both what what David and what Geraldine were talking about the fact of it doesn't matter really in 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 perception that we that we 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 remember or notice the negatives that the negatives are more affectively persuasive they're more, they have more heft and that's what what dave what you were talking about um in terms of kind of we we remember the bad stuff rather than the good and that that that's maybe something that needs it doesn't matter how many times you say but actually here's the evidence that yeah. you know this has worked well um and i so so dave actually that's just a it's really just a segue to you. <laughs> well, it's interesting i think what donald was referring to there and i i, I hate when scientists and doctors do this is what i call the noble lie when they speak with a confidence about something they cannot possibly because i think they're underestimating the intelligence of the public and i think also they're setting themselves up for a fall and there's certain scientists that do this all the time i'm going to pick on my own profession a little bit and i'll hear them on the radio saying something and i will be screaming blue murder at the radio going when people find out that that's not true or you're overstating the confidence of that finding what you're doing is damaging public trust in all of us because eventually they go oh they're all a bunch of liars or they're all idiots 
one of the things that you mentioned earlier on was about like, do we need more patient involvement? And absolutely yes. But I also think we got to go back to Laura for this as, as, as a model. One of the things that you really need is narratives in sympathy, uh, in, in symphony, right? Yeah. You need the So what Laura was amazing at doing, and she would kill me if I told you this, but Laura was one of the most studious people you could ever meet, right? And if you said that to her, she, she'd murder you. Right. But Laura <laughs> knew her stuff inside out. She would not make a statement in public that she hadn't checked with someone like Donal mm. or someone from the, the, the HSE or, or even she'd occasionally ring me and go, I'm going to say that statistic, is that correct? Yeah. And she was incredibly studious about how she did it, even if she didn't like me using that term uh, to her. You know, she, was, she never spoke off the cuff. When a patient does that, when they give their personal perspective and they are working with the medical and scientific community, that is so powerful. It can go the other way too. Um, the word patient, the term patient advocate is very um, nebulous. And we've seen, particularly with litigation over, say, cervical check, the media will say this is a patient advocate and that patient advocate might be saying something that's very much at odds with what the scientific or medical community are saying and then the the water gets muddied so i think these things work really well when they're in symphony yeah i think that when they're opposed to each other they leave everyone going i don't know what to believe and i don't trust any of that so again it's kind of like tuning your instruments you all have to be playing the same tune and when you do that it can be wonderful yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just it, as a blunt instrument, I think we have to be just cautious. Yeah. And also the responsibility it puts on patients. Laura was one in a million. You don't get people like her very often. Okay. Um, but I, I wouldn't ask that of all patients by any mean stretch. It's, it's a big ask, you know. No, I think that's I think that's a really important point, and that idea of of kind of symphony and and keeping things grounded in um, in in reality, so to speak, is 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 really key. Um, and it's I suppose the question is how do you capture how do you simultaneously manage that and capture that narrative of power um, that we that we that we saw with Laura and that Geraldine drew attention to throughout the, the kind of the nineteenth and, and early twentieth. I, I think on that note, every patient doesn't have to be a Yes, of course. Yeah. Let me sign up for treatment, yeah. by the way. <laughs> but even just having patients involved in service development, and yeah. uh, I'll, I'll give you a good example. We did a big reconfiguration of our um, uh, services, and we we brought patients in, and we asked them, what's the most stressful period for you coming into the hospital? And they said the most stressful period was when they were coming in for their return visit, and maybe they were waiting on a scan result, and they were sitting in a room, with maybe 20, 30, 40 people waiting to be called, and they might be waiting an hour, an hour and a half. And I see Liz nodding there going, this is like bad for anybody's mental health, and wondering what they next. When am I, when am I, and all we had to do to improve their experience was just give out appropriately timed appointments. Wow. And that's a simple thing that improves, that, that costs nothing. Yeah, and it changes uh, the balance of trust. And the, 100%. And they know now, if they, they have an appointment at 9.15, they'll be seen at 9.15, and they'll be gone out of there 9:30. Of course. And they walk in the door and the level of stress has disappeared. And that's a simple thing where you sit down with that doesn't take anything that costs us nothing. Um yeah. but that's what patients want. And I think we need to go start listening to that across the whole yeah. of healthcare. And that, and that could be the difference between a good experience and a bad one. I mean, uh, Donald, I've seen Donald working and he's incredibly sensitive to needs of patients. And I'm sure he'd be the first to tell you not all physicians are often cognizant of that maybe their patients don't know the procedure they're not as familiar they haven't done yeah. it a thousand times even I can like I'm a scientist and my uncle rang me once and said uh, well my dad rang me reporting about my uncle saying oh he's got prostate cancer and I went so yeah and that was the wrong this is a man in his late 70s so that wasn't bad news but I was too blasé 
to the point where I, I was I, I, I realized actually that's not fair because they don't have that information. So, you know, they would totally understand that. And it's very easy to inadvertently not take the reality, as Donald said, that, that people don't know this. And they people are incredibly intelligent and will be happy if you give them the information in a non-condescending way, which is something we sometimes have to work on. But yeah, it, it does make a big difference to someone's overall experience, I can only imagine. So again, really, it comes down to, so exactly the same thing happened to me with my 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 father and my my husband, whose response was, so. And similarly, I was kind of got quite, quite cross with him. Um, and, you know, and, 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 but what you're, what you're saying and what it, it, it seems to come down to across the board is the language that we use to, to convey the information. It's not, it's not simplifying the information. Yes. It is making making space for shared vocabularies and for narrative a point in a narrative where we can meet i was really struck donal when you were speaking about the 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 distinction you made between disease and illness um and that that it is it is in in capturing the narrative and in sharing the narrative because of course the doctor patient relationship and the, the sort of the scientist public relationship is founded and mediated in narrative there is no getting out of that there's no other way to do it and so until we figure out how to capture those narratives perhaps we're going to be swimming upstream a little bit i am conscious of time so we might leave it there if anybody has last comments or yeah liz wants to come in I just wanted to thank everyone for giving their time today. And I have to say, I'm always nervous when we do a, a mind reading event. I always think we're bringing together really disparate people from really different backgrounds. And often people who are speaking say, oh, you know, I have nothing in, in common with people from a different area of humanities and things. And yet every time we do it, it turns out we are all looking at similar problems from different perspectives. Uh, and every time we do one of these events, I learn so much from other people's work. And as Claire said, every time I'm so struck by so, how self-effacing people with a huge amount of expertise are, you know, it's really amazing. So I think having these conversations across disciplines is so powerful. And I absolutely think we need to be doing it earlier on in, in curriculae, like in undergraduate curriculae, both in the humanities and in medicine. Um, and in, you know, lots and lots of other areas, thinking about lots of the topics around rights and uh, cross lifespan approaches and things that have come up today. So thank you all so much for your time. And I also wanted to thank Claire, who has curated this session. As oh, well. not at all. It was it was a pleasure. I was amazed that everyone was was available, which thank God. And and thank you so much for, for being so selfless, selfless with your time. I know it's a really busy uh, it's a really busy time. I have learned so much today um, and it's been such a pleasure hearing all of you and thank you so much for bringing your expertise and sharing your time.